I know my grandfather is going to go kicking and screaming, does not want to get a diagnosis, right? And I'm sure people call in and ask about like, how do I literally get them diagnosed, right? And like, what do you guys say? Is you, you somehow have to get them kicking and screaming. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, it's not like, I was in the car this weekend and my husband was like, you can't get that disease. Welcome back to I'm the Villain. So today we have Richard back on the show. Um, he was our guest for the, what was it? The parenthood? Or no, no, it wasn't parenthood. It was father. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fatherhood episode. Um, and we're, today we're going to be talking about Alzheimer's. And uh, because Richard is actually the chair of his local chapter of the Alzheimer's Association. Um, and... I, I actually have a personal connection to this because my uh, grandfather, my mom's side, died of Alzheimer's and I'm like super at risk. So I'm definitely, you know, very relevant conversation to me. So, yeah, Richard, why don't you just uh, give like your quick little, um, you know, intro to the people listening? Yeah. So it's, it's great to be back. So thanks for having me back. Um, yeah. Alzheimer's is something that um, if you if you have not been touched by it, I've promise you will be. And and so my role is chair of the Iowa chapter of the Alzheimer's Association. We've got the national chapter and then we've got all these local and regional uh, structures as well. But as a nonprofit, our goal is, is to live in a world without Alzheimer's. And so our mission at the local level is a little bit different than the national mm -hmm. level. Um, but at the end of the day, our, our charge is to help families impacted by the disease. And sometimes that means we're going to do, you know, fun research. Sometimes it means we're going to do community trainings. And other times it means, or actually all the time, we're going to do our 24-hour free hotline for anyone who has questions or concerns or just needs someone to talk to. And I'm sure we'll dive into that. But um, so my job, my role is to, to keep raising awareness, keep having the conversation. And it's why I come on to shows like this one to talk about the work that we do and, and how close and yet sometimes how far we are from treatments and a cure. Mm -hmm. Is that your full-time job, Richard? It is not. It's 100% volunteer. Amazing. Wow. So none of that, is it all um, like even the people who are staffing the hotline is volunteer? So I believe I probably should know the answer to that question. Um, there's definitely paid staff, but I also think there's um, some volunteer effort on that front um, mm -hmm. because we, we do have, uh, you know, nurses and clinicians and, and those those types of people who can speak to those questions that someone might be having. Um, so I think, I think it's a mixture of both, actually, on the, on the hotline. Got it. Yeah. And so how, yeah, tell us how you got into that role. Yeah. So I used to live on the, on the East coast and it was really hard actually to get involved philanthropically um, to get people to respond. You know, I, I was willing to give hours to a cause and to get people to respond back was really hard, uh, which you wouldn't <clears> think <throat> is the case. Um, so when we decided to move back to the Midwest to a smaller community, I wanted to give my time to something that I felt was not getting, um, publicity was not getting enough effort. And so I did a bunch of research and I felt like Alzheimer's was one of those diseases. And I like to say, what I, what I like to say to people is I'm willing to bet that every one of your listeners has someone in their circle, in their family who has um, had cancer in one way, shape or another. With Alzheimer's, while it's, we have not reached that threshold, I'm willing to bet that there are people in all of your listener circles who, who have Alzheimer's or someone's past from Alzheimer's, but they don't know it because it's not talked about very much. Whereas if, if someone's going through, through cancer, it's a very public fight. 
Alzheimer's is very different. It becomes very private. That circle gets a lot smaller. And so for, for me, choosing Alzheimer's was to make sure we continue to raise the awareness, continue to, to work towards a cure. And uh, I got involved six, seven years ago and um, in, in various capacities and, and continued to give my time, continue to speak out and, and try and be a voice for, for those who can't speak for what it's for, for the challenges that they're having. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you think the, the difference in notoriety, does it come from sort of like the nature of the disease and how sort of alienating the disease in is, is, or is it just kind of not in the popular sphere in your opinion? I think, I think it's a mix. Um, you know, our, our association has been, has only been around for uh, you know, 40, 45, 50 years, something like that. Whereas organizations, I mean, We've been, we've been fighting cancer for a long time. I mean, you can go back and then whereas Alzheimer's was always, it's just, you're just getting old and that's a hundred percent. Not true. We slow down when we get older like that. That's very natural. We don't lose significant pieces of our function and memory because we're getting older. That's Alzheimer's. And so, um, that's, that's a new medical understanding is that growing old does not mean Alzheimer's. Well, yeah. Tell us, cause the only thing basically my, Basic understanding is it's a degenerative neurological disease and you basically start losing your memory. But that's pretty much all I know. Do you have like more to f- like, can you flesh that out? I will flesh it out as best I can. So the, the, the predominant thinking about Alzheimer's and, and dementias is there are these uh, plaques in our brains, which are they're spo- like they are supposed to be there. But what's happening is what's called the amyloid plaques. Um they are starting to combine and block information from sending from one point to another is essentially what's happening. And that's been the the predominant focus of research is how, how do we attack that element of the disease based on what we know? And the challenge with Alzheimer's especially is the disease itself is working before any outward symptoms occur. And so by the time, and mm-hmm. we're getting better and we're, tests are coming on, you know, we're continuing to test ways to test for Alzheimer's and other dementias. But by the time it, it, it shows to family and friends, it's oftentimes too late to slow it down. Well, how do you test it before you see any symptoms? Yeah. So there's, there's you can do very expensive uh, brain scans. Um, uh-huh. but for a doctor to, to recommend that, that's a, and for an insurance, for an insurance company to be, yeah, let's pay for, you know, that, that expensive test. There's gotta be a reason for it, but for there to be a reason for it, you've gotta be showing the, the signs. Yeah. That would never happen. Yeah. Yeah. So then you're too far along. Yeah. It, so the, the part of the research side has been, how do we run, is there a way to do a blood test? And we are doing some research and it's getting closer on, on a, a blood test, um, brain scan, like I said. Um, and then we were talking before you hit record, genetics can play a role. And so if you are more predisposed to it, the doctors can be paying attention more. They can be, be having more neurological tests um, to start to see if there's any signals. Um, so there's a lot of things, there's a lot of things in motion and how do we um, diagnose Alzheimer's? Um, we're not where we need to be, but that's, that's part of the challenge of medical research. Yeah. So I feel like the mission of your org, you said, was ultimately to have a world without Alzheimer's. Is that so? Does that imply that you know it's feasible that there is a way to cure this or reverse this process in some way? I mean, that's the vision. That's the hope. Um, and and 
every day, you know, we as an association say we're getting closer. So the Alzheimer's Association outside of government uh, is the world's is the world's leading funder of, of research. Um, and we're very proud of that. Um, research is not an inexpensive thing. And it's, uh, you know, I think we're all living through through COVID and saw how fast that vaccine came to market, um, yes. which is amazing. Um, but, it, it, you know, in all honesty, it's a miracle. I mean, we, we yeah, work yeah. on drugs, um, you know, you know, pre-trial, then phase one, phase two, phase three. And those take years, you know, with something like like Alzheimer's. And so, yeah, there's a hope. Um, there's actually a drug that's in front of the FDA right now. Um, we should know in a couple of weeks. It doesn't stop. It doesn't prevent. But it's shown um, to have if, if a patient receives it in the early stages to reduce the speed of Alzheimer's by 22 to 25 percent. Um, wow. And so we're, we're making progress, but we're, we're, we're still a ways away from a cure of any kind um, because yeah. the challenge is we just still don't entirely understand what's happening inside the brain. Yeah. How much is it funded compared to other, you know, big like cancer, for example? So. Yeah. And I don't know. I don't have those figures. Um, yeah. The so the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, is the is the government arm that funds um, research, and Alzheimer's is one of their top uh, priorities. Um, each year, over the last six or seven years, we've been able to advocate um, for increased funding at that level um, because they continue to, to see that it it is a a health crisis in our country, um, and and just so your listeners can understand that that's not hyperbole that's that's actual numbers if you want to look at that so uh in this year alone the treatment of alzheimer's patients is going to cost about 350 billion dollars now that may not seem like a lot it is um but if you if you map that out in terms of our aging population the fact that we don't have uh treatments or cures on the market today it's estimated that, that will be 1.1 trillion by 2050 so that's just the medical cost but what we see with Alzheimer's and dementia, dementia families is oftentimes they stay in the home for, for long, longer than putting them into a nursing home or a, an advanced care facility. So what happens with that is you've got a husband, a wife, a son or daughter staying home with, with the Alzheimer's patient, and they have to miss work, which is a cost to the employer. Their health <clears> suffers <throat> both mentally and physically because of, because of the stress of taking care of this, this loved one. And then they end up footing the bill for a lot of the care as well. And so it's not just that original cost, it's everything that comes with it. Um, and so I was at an event years ago where, where the, the speaker said that we are coming up upon a financial tsunami when we're talking about the Alzheimer's care. And I had never thought of it like that because um, Alzheimer's is a disease at this point that doesn't end. Once it starts, it's going to continue as opposed to almost every other disease uh, that, that we that we deal with today. So um, there's significant uh, diagnosis costs that come with it. I would imagine that some of the arguments around like when you're advocating for, OK, we need to put more funding towards this. I imagine some of the pushback would be something along the lines of like, well, this is a disease that prom like mostly affects older people. Right. And I feel like especially during covid, we've become a lot more familiar with these kind of bioethics arguments around, oh, well, should we prioritize older people? Like given that, like, 
I was listening to a podcast talking about how we measure like basically how we allocate things like, you know, like um, just like funding in terms of um, quality adjusted life years. Right. And which means that like, you know, if you can save, you know, the life of a very young person who's going to live like 60 more years versus someone who's like in their 90s or something, uh, I believe now we would give the ventilator to like the young person. Right. And so how does that kind of uh, play out in your advocacy? Yeah. So you can look at it at that scale. But here, here's what happens. There's there's, you know, Alzheimer's at 75, which is very different than what we call early onset Alzheimer's, which can come in your 40s. And so it's really hard to make that argument that, again, it goes back to what I said before, that Alzheimer's is not just getting old. It's something that's happening in our brains that is that is stopping these neurological messages from being sent. And so um, if there's a way to slow that down and have someone maintain, you know, their their living life and and still go to work um, and contribute in that way, there's tremendous value in that. And you can reduce the long term care costs. Right. So if we can slow this disease so they can get to 90 and not be at the worst stage of the disease, then that's a strong investment. Right. Um, yeah. And so I, I think I don't think you I don't think you can use look at this disease in the same way um, yeah. just because of uh, the age when you when you can get it and then how it can hopefully be treated in the, in the future. Yeah. Do you know offhand the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia? The ultimate result is the same how it gets there is different um and because like there's alzheimer's is the is the majority and when we say alzheimer's and all the dementias alzheimer's is the majority of those cases um but there's like lewy bodies dementia there, like there's all kinds of like variants much like covid we have all these different variants right and so it's the same kind of deal so our approach is uh, from a met from a research standpoint if we can figure out the, the baseline solution, we can map out the rest of it, I think, is the, the scientific approach. Because um, at the end of the day, they all they all uh, block memory. They all block cognition. Um, you know, and, and we're talking very simple things. I, there was a there was a story here locally over Mother's Day um, where um, a gentleman who, who had who has early onset Alzheimer's, he's you know still living his day-to-day life but he had to stop going to work and no no longer can drive his car because he doesn't remember what the red light and green light mean very simple everyday things that we lose yeah i mean my last remaining grandparent my grandfather is basically hasn't been diagnosed basically really needs a diagnosis and he's been caught multiple times like driving the wrong way down a one-way street and like that kind of thing and i yeah and at the my initial reaction was like oh like why would that like i get you know not remembering where you're going but like yeah why would that affect like i mean presumably you can still read the one-way sign you know (laughs) but if you don't know what the arrow means right right? it's just yeah it's those everyday things we don't think about and so like that's one of the we we do a program called the 10 warning signs and we walk through what are those 10 things you know you see so you see grandma and grandpa for the first time in a year or, or you know at the holidays or whatever and you notice that things just are a little off you know like we all misplace our keys that's not a huge deal but if that sure. happens three times in a row every day that that's a warning sign that we that that you as a family or friend need to be aware of um and that's when you might call our 800 number to find out grandma's doing this what's what's the deal here what do i need to do you know and so um, it's, it's so hard, um, 
because oftentimes the person who is who is struggling through Alzheimer's or, or dementia in those early stages, they don't know that something's wrong. Right. Yeah. Whereas, yeah. like, if, yeah. again, I, I don't always like to go back to cancer, but it's a really easy comparison. You know, if you don't feel right. Right. Yeah. Well, actually, that's something that like, you know, if I were to call the hotline and I'm like, because this is like very relevant to me, is that like, you know, I know my grandfather is going to go kicking and screaming, does not want to get a diagnosis. Right. And I'm sure people call in and ask about like, how do I literally get them diagnosed? Right. And like, what do you guys say? Is you you somehow have to get them kicking and screaming? Um, Because it's not like I was in the car this weekend, and my husband was like, "You can't get that disease." I'm like, "I know. I don't want to get it either. I can't do anything about it." Um, Because we were just talking about our futures and work we were doing. Um, The other struggle that we've had um, as an association is uh, either misdiagnosis um, or undiagnosis. And what I mean by undiagnosis Mm -hmm. is there are there have been cases of physicians in this country who don't want to give the diagnosis because they don't know what to do. I mean, like you, you give a diagnosis of you've, you've got, you know, ADHD or hypertension. I know what to, there's, there's drugs and stuff you can do. You, you, you diagnose someone with Alzheimer's and there's a lack of training on what's, what's next. And so uh-huh. not only is it tough for you to get grandpa to go, but it's tough for sometimes a doctor to then give the right diagnosis. Well, is actually is Alzheimer's Alzheimer's feels like one of those really gray areas of like, is it technically considered a mental illness or is it considered? A, you know what I mean? Like, because like it, it seems like it would be very much like straddling. Like, is this something that you like a psychiatrist or something would would diagnose better than like a doctor who like deals with like, you know, broken legs and that kind of thing? I mean, I think they could probably play a role in you know, under like understanding what's going on with with that loved one. Um <laughs> And they would certainly probably be a part of treatment um, for both loved ones and that and that uh, and the person impacted by by Alzheimer's or dementia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Does the underdiagnosis part come like sort of as a result of what you were saying as like people thinking like, oh, this is just a part of what getting older is, but it's actually not. Do people just kind of like write off the signs until it's too late or? Yeah, people write off the signs all the time. Um just because it's again, we get old and we we do get more forgetful as we get old. And some t- some of that at a high level is get, just getting old. Right. Um, right. But uh, if you, for instance, going back to that stoplight uh, example, we know what the stoplight is there for. Right. We know that that thing is there to direct traffic. But then we forget yeah. what those actually mean. So, like, it, you 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 can know what the thing is for but you don't know how to use the thing. Right. Um, and, and that becomes such a big challenge with just everyday life. Um, and so it can be the keys. It can be how to turn on the car. It can be, um, you know, what the TV remote is for. There was a study, um, released a couple of weeks ago about what the brain does to new visuals. Um, and the example was just think of your, 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 your dining room, right? And there's a shadow in midday when the sun's coming through and it's bouncing off the the dining room table and it creates a shadow under the table. The brain then to an Alzheimer's patient can do nothing with that or it can make that shadow seem like it's a big giant hole in your house. Now, what do you think that does to someone's brain, you know, your your psyche when you see that happen? Um, And so it's 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 uh, it can be, you know, on the on the low level and on the high end. Um, Yeah. So it seems like like the 
sort of dialogue around the disease is almost kind of reductive to just call it a memory issue, right? Like it's not just a memory issue. Uh, it, it presents itself as a memory issue, uh, right. but it's definitely not because what happens though, as you age through the, through the disease, um, the best way to put it is uh, your body then starts to not know what to do, right? So like the stage one of disease is basically like you start to have that early memory loss a little bit of the cognitive cognitive function, and then as you start to progress through, your uh, your bodily functions are going to start to to go away because your body doesn't know what to do. Like you don't know that I feel this in my bladder. That means I've got to go to the bathroom. You just go right, right. Um, and so uh, then as it, again it continues to go, your body becomes weaker and it doesn't know how to fight pneumonia. Like it legitimately doesn't know what to do anymore with yourself. Um, and so we'll see it. And we're, this is one of those things from a from a medical field standpoint that we're, we're we've made a lot of progress in. A lot of times, an Alzheimer's patient uh, will die. I mean, not everyone will die, obviously, but but that person will pass away, and the cause of death will be pneumonia or heart disease, not the underlying condition which got them to that point. Um, and so we really don't have a full understanding of of how many people have passed away from Alzheimer's, um, but that happens all the time. And so um, it, there, there was 60 Minutes did a story a couple years back where, um, I mean, the, the woman was just a shell of herself and, and it was going to be something else that caused her to die, but Alzheimer's got her to that point. Right. Right. And that's, I think that's an issue that's like not even just exclusive to Alzheimer's, right? We like, we really have, we really are not good at like determining like, you know, prevent or like cause of death if they, it wasn't like the literal thing that killed somebody right like that happened with aids a bunch like that's happened with covid right for sure so wanted to kind of jump back and speak on uh you kind of getting involved with the organization i know that you mentioned like I've, i'm very familiar with the nonprofit sector i went to like you know i studied it in school and i've been, been a part of it for a long time so when you were talking about like finding a place to devote time to is really hard like yeah for sure um so did you, I mean, how much, how much like on the job learning did you do at first? Right. I mean, you seem pretty knowledgeable now, but I'm assuming you didn't have this sort of breadth of knowledge when you first started. Yeah, you, I knew nothing. I legitimately knew nothing. Um, and you just learn as you go. And one of the things that we would do at the start of any meeting would be, you know, who are you, who do you work for? Um, and why are you here? And what was so interesting was, uh, early on, everyone would be like, Oh, well, my aunt has Alzheimer's or my, my mother passed away from Alzheimer's and, and I, it'd, it'd come to me and it's like, Oh, I just care. And I want to be here and give my time. Well, then there was one day I'll never forget. I was driving home talking to my dad and, uh, I don't remember why it clicked in my head. Uh, but I, uh, said to him, I was like, wait, didn't aunt Maida have Alzheimer's? She, I'd known her growing up as a kid. And then Sometime when I was a teenager, she just moved down to Arizona to live with her sister. I never saw her again. Um, and he's like, well, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I had gone, you know, 15 years without even, without even remembering that my family had Alzheimer's. Um, and so then I, then when I would be in a meeting, I could say, I've, you know, my, my aunt passed away from Alzheimer's. And since then, we've had a, a family friend who I grew up with also have Alzheimer's, a, a gentleman who has lived across from my parents for 25 years now has dementia. Um, and so as I talk to people and as I do media interviews and, and volunteer and host events, 
I just learned more and more. And, uh, you know, I, I talked to my members of Congress, my people at the state legislature um, about the issues and the causes and, and the laws we want to get passed to uh, improve the lives of, of um, everyone who, who is dealing with this t- today and who may deal with it tomorrow. So, uh, yeah, it's just staying up on top of what's happening and uh, not wavering in the importance of, of this cause. Yeah. For anyone who has has not had like a personal experience with Alzheimer's, I definitely recommend um, the movie The Father, which was actually just nominated for um, Best Actor and won Best Actor this year, actually. Um, and it is really one of the one of the moments that really highlighted just like the the gravity of what the experience is like going through losing your memory is like there's a they do a really good job of having like basically different actors play the same people because it's like, oh, I, you know, who, who are you? Right. Cause like you see, you know, his daughter's like boyfriend or partner or whatever come in and he's like played by a different character and you are afraid. You're like, what, who the fuck is this guy in your house? You know? And you're like, yeah. oh yeah, this seems like it would literally be like a horror movie. Right. Like all these people who are claiming to be like really close to you and you have no clue who the fuck they are. Yeah. There was uh, I just got sent a TikTok video a couple of days ago of a of a woman who uh, is on you know some scale of Alzheimer's or dementia, and it was her daughter, and they were just talking, and the daughter's like, "Well, do you know who I am?" And the woman, the the older woman, wasn't sure, and she just sat there and was like, "Are you my daughter?" And she, the the daughter's like, "Yeah, I'm your daughter," and she's like, "Oh, you're really beautiful," and like it just ripped your heart out yeah 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 is there like preventative measures that we can take in our life to help like it not happen (laughs) this is the kind of thing my this is the kind of thing my mom talks about all the time because i feel like every single month she reads one of these magazines it's like oh you got to avoid aluminum like you got to avoid xyz things so that you won't get alzheimer's because she's so afraid of that you know so there's a couple of things and there's data to back up what i'm about to say um and, and I'll send you this one because you, you, you probably won't believe it. But the first thing is it, it is always to eat healthier. Um, so eat greens, um, eat, eat uh, what we call brain healthy food. Um, so like whole grains, fruits and veggies. Um, those are always going to be good choices um, because this really is. This is about your brain, right? So whatever is going to make your, your brain um, be healthy. Um, two new things came out over the last couple of years. Um, this one um, I forget the quantity, so I'll have to, well, you'll have to put some notes in your show notes, but something sure. about drinking red wine can be good for your brain. Um, and that showed. Oh yeah, brother. Right. Wait, I thought that the red wine thing, cause I know there was a study that was like, oh, like red wine makes you live longer. And then they were like debunked that because they were like, oh, well actually people who are more affluent, who can afford red wine tend to live longer because there's all of these like, you know, that. Whatever. So this had nothing to do with longevity. This was this was definitely connected to the disease itself. So okay. And then the Got other it. one came out uh, sometime in uh, either 2019 or 2020. I forget. Um, and it was about the flu shot. And I, again, I don't know how or why, but they said those who had received one flu shot in their lifetime showed a reduction in instances of Alzheimer's. Um, so like wow. I, after I read after I read that study, I got my one flu shot. Wow. Like in your whole life. Just at one time. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Same. I, I got my first one last year. So that's good to know. Yeah. Get your flu shot, folks. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and it's free in a lot of places. So there you go. 
So I feel like there's this really um, contentious kind of like bioethics conversation around like me and my mom have had this conversation numerous times around assisted suicide or I think it's now now the term is like death with dignity is the right. And um, that must like the death with dignity people must like interact with you guys in some way. And I'm curious. Right. Is that true? If they do, they don't. I don't know about it. Oh, okay. Interesting. Because I, because I feel like that would be the kind of thing that would definitely, there, there, there would be some, I mean, I imagine there's a lot of Alzheimer's patients who either have that conversation or like think about that once they get a diagnosis. And I'm curious what your thoughts are around it. So I will not speak for the association at all. Um, okay. When, when I campaigned for office in 2018, um, I was advocating for a death, what, what I call the death with dignity um, here in the state of Iowa. Um, because, because of Alzheimer's, because of, uh, terminal illnesses, um, and what you brought up before about, um, you know, longevity and quality of life and those kinds of things. Um, because, uh, I'm a firm believer in government should do certain things and do them really well. Um, one of the things they should not do is tell me, uh, when someone can die, like that's a personal thing. Right. Um, okay. and so, uh, I was in favor from favor of it from a legislative perspective and then how the medical side deals with it is, is their, is their business. Um, but yeah, it, it, I don't like thinking about that side, side of the side of the situation. Cause it's none of this is good. Um, okay. but, right. but, uh, I think we're at a point in our understanding of science and understanding of health where we should be able to have that conversation from a, uh, legislative and medical perspective. Yeah, because for me, the conversation feels really inextricably linked because like whenever I talk with my mom about Alzheimer's, you know, she's like, yeah, I would not want to live in a state where I didn't like know you and I couldn't remember who I was or something like that. Right. And I think a, a lot of people, when they think about Alzheimer's, like kind of have that thought go through their heads. Right. Yeah. Um, And I think one one um really like one movement I think that's been happening a lot more is. Uh, I don't know if either of you are familiar with Atul Gawande. He has this book called Being Mortal. And he talks about like having conversations with your loved ones, you know, as you're aging on like minimum viable quality of life. Right. And that's not something that doctors are really incentivized to kind of encourage you to talk about, because there is this notion among the medical community that they have to do like whatever it takes at all costs, even if it means extending your life another five years but those five years are terrible and you're like hooked up to tubes and like you're not really living and you're in pain and you're not necessarily living the kind of life that you would have wanted had you put some thought and consideration into having that conversation with people yeah that's it's such a hard topic um but it's also important to have um so like we have these conversations about dnrs or what should you know what should happen after i die well we don't talk about to, to what you just said, like, well, what happens in those last five years when I'm not even me in any any way, shape or form? Right. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, th th there, there's value in having those conversations and, and ideally finding a way to let people make that choice for themselves. Yeah. Right. Before it becomes I mean, I'm sure legally there's a point at which they literally can't say anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, like, the, the very nature of Alzheimer's makes it really difficult to navigate the space. Right. Because, like. You know, when are you when are you considered to have enough mental faculty to be able to make that right. call for yourself? Right. And I know at least in D.C., death dignity is legal. And part of 
the stipulations of if you want to get it is you have to be able to like have the mental faculties to administer it to yourself like right. you can't have a doctor yep. so basically it has it's like a 12 or 16 ounce cocktail that you have to drink and it's actually pretty traumatic because you have to drink it within like two or three minutes before you pass out otherwise it will not fully like kill you basically yeah and that's very you know you don't Obviously, if you've made that decision, you don't want to wake up in the hospital roll like, you know, the next day and then half of your body is dead. And so that I feel like a lot of people like, you know, once we got it legalized, which I think was back in like 2016, we were like, oh, yeah, this is great. Now, now we have this big victory. But then in terms of the actual implementation of it, like doctors and pharmacists who prescribe the cocktail get like death threats all the time and so even very similar to like abortion clinics right and so it's the kind of thing where you're like oh wow like it's actually really difficult to actually execute because they have to make it very secretive how to actually go through the process which is not the way healthcare should be um, right yeah in any aspect yeah in any aspect <laughs> um because we're dealing with the health of people, mental health, physical health, um, and uh, it just needs to be accessible. It needs to be understandable. Um, and it, it, yeah, it, this shouldn't be hard. We make it a lot harder than it should be um, in, in mm -hmm. almost everything. So, Richard, I'd love for you to just talk a little about like the various responsibilities you've had at the organization. Like, what what sort of hats have you worn throughout your years, and what does that look like on a day to day basis? Yeah, so my background is in marketing, and so I first started on their marketing communications committee. Um, and so part of that was just making connections with media, being spokespeople for media events. Um, June is actually brain health. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm gonna get. I'm gonna try to get right. Um, Alzheimer's Brain Health Awareness Month. Um, and so <laughs> June, we always focused on what can we do in the community to just raise awareness, start those conversations. So people remember this. We haven't done it for a couple of years, but we would work with a local florist who had a connection to Alzheimer's. He would donate purple flowers. We would take these purple flowers downtown um, and put like a little sticker around the stem of the flower that says who we are. And we'd give them out over lunchtime. Nothing more than that. But like people would then yeah. take it home, take it back to their office and see this and, you know, type in the URL or something like that. And um, so just anything we could do to raise awareness was that was the charge of that, that charge of that group. And then as the, on the board, our goal is very similar, but just at larger scale. So make those connections, extend our reach. And so what we try and do now is really at a corporate level, how do we get ourselves into organizations, corporations, businesses to, to give one of our free workshops, right? Whether it's know the 10 signs of Alzheimer's or brain health awareness, like what? So like from, from the employer standpoint, we just try to encourage, and this is good for your employees to go sit through this. Um, so they can learn in case they're going through it. Right. Um, and then obviously raise money and, and, uh, help with events that we have as well. Um, and then, and then advocate at the state and federal levels for different laws, um, both, you know, laws and then, and then funding. Um, so, you know, we have, we have some various things in Iowa, our most recent pitch, which didn't, didn't work this year, but, um, it was to increase penalties for what we call elder abuse. So that could be physical. That could be you're stealing from an elder who doesn't know that you're stealing from them um, because we see it happen. Um, so it's for, for us as an organization, it's not only we want to find the cure and treatments, but make sure that we, we protect people along the way. 
Yeah, advocating for you know the rights of people with Alzheimer's. How does that work on the le- like legislative level, right? Because I I'm interested in doing that with a bunch of things in like I'm in death care, so like they they I know they just like legalized like body uh, recomposition, for example, in Colorado, and I'm really curious. How do you is there like a sign up list of like okay like you know this is the day you can come into court and like talk not court but like you know into the state legislature or something. And like, talk to us about your cause. Like, how does that work? So for us, uh, most most um, organizations have a, a specific day that they pick to, to come up to, at least at, the, at our state level. Um, and for us at the national level, too, we have a, a two. Typically, we have a two day in person event in Washington. I think this year's virtual again. Um, but where we help schedule event you know, meetings with your Congress people, your, your senators sit down, tell your story. I, what we've learned over time is the more personal we can make it, the the, the, the more value we can provide. And, and then for us at the, the state level, the other thing we want to do is give them that phone number because they talk with, you know, their citizens all the time and they might have someone come to them and say, my my grandma's got Alzheimer's and we don't know what to do. Oh, you know, funny, I met with this person from the association. I have their 800 number. You should call them. Um, so really, we just want to be that resource more than anything. Um and so, yeah, for, for advocacy, it's, it's, we, we schedule a day, um, and then it's just continual communication with, with our, with the leader, some, with the leaders, because some years we don't have what we call an ask. We just want them to understand the impact of what this disease is doing to our communities. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So even when you don't have an ask, you still get those days. hundred percent. With them. hundred percent. Yeah. Got it. Wow. That's that's awesome. Like, did the is it um, difficult to find people who want to share their stories, or is that actually is that pretty easy? You know, it's hard in the sense that uh, it's traumatic in a lot of cases, right? Very traumatic. Um, and if someone's going through it in that very moment, that can be hard. Um, one of our uh, advocates here in the state of Iowa, it, she's so crazy passionate. Um, she had a situation where her husband, one of the ways that Alzheimer's manifested in him was he became physically abusive of people who were trying to take care of him. Oh. So there, she, she had to put him into a care facility that was so far away from her. She couldn't see him very often. And that in and of itself is bad for the person going through Alzheimer's. Um, and so she tells her story very passionately um, from a number of different angles. So it's, it, it is very personal. It's very, to your point, it's very traumatic. Um, and we want to help people through that. So when you're ready to tell that story, we are more than happy to, to, to give you that platform to do so. Um, Mm -hmm. because that makes it real, you know, does the org sort of, um, help with like connecting people to like counseling services or like support groups in any way, you know, people that are caretakers. Yep. We actually have support groups that we host, um, all across the country. Um, and one of the things that we learned through COVID this is one of the bright spots for us that came out of COVID. You know, we were, we're, you know, we have staff and their job is to do those types of support groups and volunteers also help with those as well. Um, but with COVID, we had to stop in-person support groups. So what that allowed us to do, however, was actually extend our reach because, you know, communities that were 60 miles away from a support group, they weren't going to support group because they can't leave their loved one for four hours on a Tuesday night, right? So this allowed us to actually reach more people and we're going to start to do a hybrid support group model going forward. Um, but yeah, we do support groups. Um, obviously we have the, the 24 hour free hotline. 
Um, and, and these support groups are everything. It's, it's um, you know, you just, you are a caretaker or you have Alzheimer's or um, you work in a facility that, that you need to know more. We're starting to do more um, uh, specific types of support groups. So we're looking at, um, do we need to have one just for um, black caregivers or LGBTQ caregivers? And so like, are there nuances to those communities that, that should have a different support group? Um, which there are. Um, and so we're just yeah. trying to make sure that we make the right impacts um, and provide the right supports where it's needed. Going off of what you just mentioned about different demographic demographics, I can't remember if we've talked about this already, but are there certain demos that are more susceptible to Alzheimer's? Yeah, actually. And it, this, this is, again, one thing that we don't necessarily understand about the disease yet. Um, but women are two thirds as likely to have uh, Alzheimer's or dementia. Um, and black Americans are two times as likely as, as their, wow. as their white uh, neighbors. And so that's part of the challenge. And we've worked really hard to make inroads uh, specifically in the black community um, to, to make sure that, that they understand um, everything we've talked about this entire episode, you know, what are the signs and how do you go get help? And a lot of that then comes back to, uh, you know, socioeconomic status and access to doctors and medical care and, and yeah. trust and in medical doctors. Nutritional food. I'm yeah. Really and like skepticism of the skepticism, medical community. Yeah. And it's, right. so it's this like, huge, it's this huge pile we're trying to, to, to fix. And there's so table. many pieces to that, but um, we know, and uh, that that's a huge focus of us going forward. Great. Yeah, I actually did not know that, which is wild because I'm, you know, black. <laughs> so, so I should know that. Well, I mean, it's again, the kind of thing where it's like, yeah, it's not talked about probably for those types of reasons. Right. And it's, you know, because like, you know, probably a lot of people are focusing on on diseases that affect white people more because those people have more money, whatever, whatever. Um but I'm I'm really curious how the um, because I you know I I have been a part of because I work in death care and so a lot of the groups that I've been a part of like the doula trainings that I've done and a lot of these doula associations for example are going through this kind of racial reckoning right now where they're like oh well we need to really tighten up our you know DEI education and like try to form these committees and stuff. And I've really been wondering what, and there's no like right answer, but I'm like really wondering if it makes more sense to just direct people to like the black doulas that already exist in communities and like have them like do the trainings because it's really difficult in my mind to take like a predominantly, like, you know, Inelda, which is the group where I did my death doula training, totally white. Right. <laughs> Every trainer's white. Right. And it's sort of like it feels like such a uh, difficult ask to come in and like, you know, you have to ask. There's always has to be the first person to come on and be like their first black trainer. And that's always difficult, like this tokenizing thing. And then it's sort of like, you know, yeah. Would it just literally be easier to not try to do this like integration thing and just be like, OK, well, like we already know that there's that there's black doula trainers out there to support. And I don't know if maybe like, are there already black Alzheimer's organizations? Like I have no idea. We, there, there aren't in that way. So we here in Iowa, we've actually, uh, we, one of our board members is, is, is black and she's super active in the church community. Like that's her, that's where she was first was in the church community. Um, but her, 
if I remember right, it was her mother who passed away from Alzheimer's. Um, and so she's she's been on her board for a number of years. And she has had every one of those conversations with those church leaders. Um, mm-hmm. And she's the one having those conversations and making those introductions. And we have made so many inroads because of her and her passion and her connection to that community. So, yeah, like it's it's funny because I, I'm a member of the LGBTQ community and they asked me to you know, help drive some of the strategy here in, in Iowa about that with that community. And I, I immediately, I, I at first pushed back because I felt like, well, if you're, if you're dealing with Alzheimer's, you're, it's all the same. And why, why should we have a specific, you know, group for that? And then I reached out to some people in my circle uh, and I was like, am I looking at this the wrong way? And they said, yeah, the LGBTQ experience is probably different than a straight experience when it comes to Alzheimer's. So you've got You've got straight and you've got gay and you've got black and you've got Hispanic. So like it's super hard. So it, it, what I think what we've learned is that you have to you can't start from the outside. You've got to start with someone already on the inside to have those conversations. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's wild to think about the fact that I would imagine your organization is probably predominantly white, like doing this advocacy for a, a like, you know, a group or a disease that predominantly affects black people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we're, we're working through all of that. You know, it's uh, a from a, you know, a volunteer perspective and a community outreach perspective. And yeah, there's a lot, <laughs> a lot of elements at play um, to get where we want to go, which, as I said at the start, is a world without Alzheimer's and all other dementias. And it takes a community and we're trying to build that community to get us there. Richard, thank first of all, thanks so much for being a repeat guest and you know sharing. I'm sure, like linked but disparate expertises on the show <laughs> and a very candid conversation about it. I feel like the one link that I can think of is that like you know we were talking last time about how no one prepares you to be a parent, and it's very similar with becoming a caregiver for like your parents, right? <laughs> no one prepares you to do that too either, right? Yeah. Um, speaking of, how is Kennedy doing? She's good. Um, definitely uh, uh, an emotive two-year-old, which is wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> she Amazing. she got her first pair of pair of jellies this weekend, so she's in love with those. Wait, what do you mean? Like apparently it was a thing in the seventies, like these these clear jelly-ish type of shoes. Yeah. Um, oh. Yeah, I didn't know either, but yeah, I've never. Heard of <laughs> but she's into it so that's good yeah <laughs> cool um okay well this is your time do you have anything that you want to plug i mean obviously the the association um i'm gonna give the 800 number if you need or want to call have questions concerns need help need to vent um it's 1-800-272-3900 and you can go to alz.org to get all the information you want be connected with your local chapters they're always looking for volunteers um or again if you just want to you know learn more and, and um, uh, have that kind of impact. And, and you can find me on Twitter. It's just my name, Richard Didor. Happy to answer any questions that you have or connect those dots for you as well. Amazing. And as always, you can find us at I'm the villain pod. That's our Twitter. That's our Gmail. And that's our Instagram. Otherwise, bye. <laughs>